We'll be reading the entire chapter um, from verses 1 through 27. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 through 27. If you'd like to follow along in the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you, we're on uh, page 529. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you in the way of wisdom, and I have led you in paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction, do not let go, guard her, she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it, do not go on. Turn away from it and pass on for they cannot sleep until they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flows the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. And pray for us once more. Father, we thank you for the word that was just read, and now we are asking by the power of your Spirit to give us illumination and understanding into this scripture, that we might be able to hear it 
to submit to it and to respond with faith and obedience for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have been in the book of Proverbs, and we have been talking about the subject of wisdom. We've already talked about how being biblically smart is not the same thing as being biblically wise, how you can be smart in the Bible, but if you don't know what to do with all of that biblical knowledge, if you don't know how to translate it into your life, how to help you live a godly life in the healthy fear of the Lord, then you're not yet wise in the Bible. We've also talked about how you get wisdom. We've said how getting wisdom does call for you to pray, for you to ask God just as Solomon asked God for wisdom. But that doesn't mean, and we, we stress this as we looked at Proverbs 3, it doesn't mean that you just sit back and you just passively wait for God to zap you with wisdom. Now, we're told in Proverbs 2, verse 4, that wisdom is something you have to seek after like silver. It's something you have to search for like hidden treasure. And you're not going to find silver or hidden treasure just kind of sitting there right on the ground, on the surface, ready for you to crouch over and, and pick it up. Now, if, if you want that silver, if you want that hidden treasure, you're going to have to dig for it. You're going to have to exert some effort for it. Well, in the same way, if you want wisdom, if you want to get wisdom, then you're going to have to dig deep into the Scriptures. You're going to have to exert some effort to study it, to understand it, and to store it up in your heart. This means, friends, that no one grows wise overnight. It's going to take time. It's going to take concerted effort to find wisdom, to get understanding, to lay hold of it. Wisdom is not just going to drop in your lap. It's not something that God just zaps you with. We have to go and get it. Look at chapter 4, verse 5. Get wisdom. Get insight. Look down at verse 7. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Whatever you get, get insight. Now, the point I want to make this morning is that getting wisdom is not like your typical approach to learning when you're at school. Like when you're in school, you expect, if you're gonna learn something, you wanna learn something new. That, that, that's how you assume you get wisdom, by, by learning new things. Review time in class, it's boring, right? I mean, no one likes reviewing past material, whether it's you know, multiplication tables or a, a vocabulary list. Like no one likes review time. We've gone over those lessons time and time again. Reviewing is boring. Teach me something new, teacher. That's how we assume you get wisdom. We see it as the pursuit of new ideas. But what we're going to discover here in chapter 4 is that we get wisdom, not by researching novel ideas. No, we get it by recollecting old truths. Getting insight is not about blazing new paths forward, but it's about keeping to the old roads, keeping to those roads that are well-trodden by the wise who have gone before us. In other words, friends, being wise has a lot more to do with not forgetting things that you were taught and not straying from the path that you were set on. We're going to see this lesson 
emphasized in three different ways, in three different sections here in Proverbs 4. Chapter 4 has three clearly demarcated sections, just like in chapter 3, each begins with Solomon, who is the author, directly addressing his son. So section 1, if you're following along, and I hope you are, Section 1 is found in verses 1 to 9. Section 2 is in verses 10 to 19. And section 3 is verses 20 to 27. And you see how it all starts with him directly addressing his son. And one commonality in all three of these sections is that word keep. Keep. So look in verse 4. Keep my commandments and live. And then look in verse 13. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Verse 21, keep my words within your heart. Verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance. And so like we said, the emphasis here in Proverbs 4 is about not forgetting old truths, keeping it fresh, and at the same time not straying from old roads, keeping it straight. So what we see emerging then are three related ideas related to keeping. Keeping tradition, keeping straight, and keeping wisdom closely guarded. Those are the three themes we see emerging from this chapter. So let's, let's start with section one. We'll, we'll start with verses one to nine and this theme of keeping tradition. Here we learn the importance of keeping the tradition of wisdom. And we're introduced here in verse 1 to a father speaking to his sons. Now, the plural use of sons does stand out here because in the rest of the book, the father is always speaking to his sons singular. This is the only place he's speaking to the sons plural. But it's really likely not all that significant. It could just be a reminder that Solomon had more than one son. Or, you know, it could be a nod to the reading audience, to us, you know, reminding us that, that the book of Proverbs is basically one long extended homeschooling lesson between a father and a son. And, and you, the reader, you get to listen in on this lesson. You, you get to observe what's going on. Now, so far in chapters 1 to 3, we've listened in on a few lessons where the father is passing along his teachings to his son. Now, the difference in chapter 4 is that the father begins to draw from deeper wells. Solomon begins to pass along lessons, not just that he learned himself through his experience with God, he begins to pass along lessons that he learned when he was a little child, taught to him by his father, King David. So listen to verses 3 to 4 again. This is Solomon saying, When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. And so here we see three generations being represented. You have grandfather, father, and son. And there's a tradition being passed along between each generation. A wisdom tradition is being handed down from father to son, or more generally, from parent to child. Each generation 
is responsible to take the lessons they learned from the generation that came before them, and they are to pass on that tradition unchanged, unsullied, unadulterated to the next generation that comes after. Listen to the words being used here that stress just how important it is to keep this wisdom tradition whole, to pass it along with great care, the great care in keeping it pure. Verse 1, hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive. Verse 2, do not forsake my teaching. Verse 5, do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. You have to be careful here. You have to listen carefully. You have to hear everything and retain everything. This constant, consistent refrain of calling for the son to listen to his father's instructions, to receive this tradition, to not forsake it, to not forget it, it just reinforces the point that we've been making that a major part of the process in growing in wisdom lies not in the pursuit of novel ideas, but in the continual recollection and remembrance of familiar truths, of a tradition of wisdom that's being handed down to you. Now, I realize that in some Christian circles, the word tradition has you know, a, a pretty bad rap, I mean, maybe for, for you, maybe some of you, you grew up in a traditional um, uh, religious context. Maybe a particular tradition of Christian teaching was, was drilled into you when you were young in a way that felt very dry and very lifeless. Or maybe some of you felt like you were force-fed the traditions of your old-fashioned parents or of your hyper-conservative childhood church. And, and now, now that you've kind of left that all behind, all you want to do is you just want to study the Bible. Like you don't care about tradition and keeping tradition. All you care about is, is God's Word. You care about Scripture. Well, friends, I, I just want you to understand, that that's not how I'm using the word tradition here this morning. It's not something that we are to pit against the Scriptures. The tradition of wisdom that we're talking about doesn't stand against or stand apart from or in contrast to Scripture. The Father's teaching here, I hope you see, is biblical teaching. I don't know if you noticed, if you noticed when, uh, when we just read Proverbs 4, but what's most notably absent in Proverbs 4 is any mention of God. And that just stands out all the more when you consider how in the previous chapter, in Proverbs 3, God had a central role. God was, was everywhere in Proverbs 3. In both chapters, you do have a father teaching a son. And in chapter 3, the Lord is all over the place in that process of a father teaching the son. So in chapter 3, it's very clear that the Lord is ultimately the one making us wise. Chapter 3, verse 11, speaks of the Lord's discipline. That word for discipline there could also be translated as the Lord's instruction. And so the wisdom that comes through the father to the son in chapter 3 is ultimately coming from the Lord. Well, where's the next instance of that word for instruction? Well, that's found in chapter 4, verse 1, talking about a father's instruction. So the Lord's instruction and the father's instruction, there's a parallel. 
And this subtle parallel shows us that there's a connection here between faithful parents teaching their kids and the Lord God teaching his people. You see, in Proverbs 3, what we get is a view from above. We get a view of the Lord teaching us to walk on paths of uprightness. Well, now here in Proverbs 4, we get a view from below. We get a view of fathers teaching their sons to walk on those same paths. The point is, is that we're describing the exact same activity of God teaching his people and fathers teaching their sons. When you put these two chapters together, the message is is that God is the one ultimately teaching his people as parents are teaching their children. One of the primary means that the Lord uses to teach us his truth and to make us wise in Scripture is through the passing down of a wisdom tradition from one generation to the next, from parents to children. So parents, what this means is that God is calling you and your instructions to be a means in which he instructs your children. It's also meaning here that your primary means, I mean, your, I mean, your primary responsibility is to teach your kids biblical truth. That is primarily your job to pass along that tradition of wisdom. Please don't outsource that for the church to do. Don't expect the children or the the youth ministry to do that for you. No, take up your task. Take up what has been entrusted to you by the previous generation and faithfully pass that tradition on to the next generation. Now, the content here of that wisdom tradition isn't really spelled out for us, and so if you're wondering, what exactly am I to pass along? What am I supposed to teach? Well, really, that's what we find in the book of Proverbs as a whole. We're going to be continuing on in this book, and we're going to see plenty of lessons, plenty of truths that we should be passing along. But here in chapter 4, the emphasis is not so much on the content of wisdom, but on the dogged pursuit of getting wisdom. Look at verse 7. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. So parents, what this means is you've got to teach your kids that the most worthwhile thing that you can chase after in life is biblical wisdom. It's not popularity. It's not good grades. It's not an Ivy League education. It's not a six-figure salary. No, it's wisdom. Biblical wisdom is the most worthwhile pursuit. Notice how starting in in verse 6, notice how wisdom is personified as a woman. It's a very common literary device that we find in the book of Proverbs since the instructions were originally directed towards a young man. So it makes sense that that its wisdom is personified this way. The point here is that finding biblical wisdom It's like finding a good wife. Wisdom is like a woman of great worth. That's that's the point that's being made. So look at verse 6 with me. Look at verse 6. If you don't forsake wisdom, if you stay true to her, if you don't chase after foolishness and falsehood, then she will keep you. If you love her, wisdom will guard you. Look at verse 8. 
If you prize wisdom highly, she will exalt you. Wisdom will honor you. If you embrace her, she will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Protection, honor, these are the benefits of getting wisdom. These are the reasons to pursue it. These are the reasons to pass on a wisdom tradition to your children. Think about it this way. As concerned as you are about your children growing up and marrying well, finding a good spouse, you should care even more that they get biblical wisdom. I I think we get so, so protective when our kids get to that age when they begin to uh, be interested in, in boys or in girls and their friends start coupling off and suddenly parents, we feel like we have to react. You know, we, we have to give them the talk or we have to sit them down and give them specific instructions about, you know, whether they can date or not and how long they can talk on the phone and, and who they can text and how they can use social media. And we're super concerned about, about what's, what they're being exposed to and, and what's influencing them and, and shaping them and, and to whom is their heart being drawn towards. And, and rightly so, we should be concerned when they hit that stage of life. But do we have even greater concern that our children are growing up biblically wise? Don't wait until they they show interest in dating before you're concerned about what's influencing them or shaping them or or what their heart is being drawn towards. Don't wait until then before you have serious talks, before you sit them down and instruct them with wisdom. As important as it is for your kids to marry well, it's even more important that they get biblical wisdom. And one crucial way that they get it is by growing up in a home where there is a tradition of biblical wisdom being passed down. And, you know, friends, it starts with something as simple as just reading the Bible with your children. Create a tradition in your home where the stories of the faith are regularly read and regularly retold. It's not really that hard. It just takes some intentionality, but the payoff, as you can see in verses 6 to 9, is well worth it. It is well worth establishing a a tradition where you are passing along the stories of our faith. But you might be asking yourself, what if I didn't have Christian parents. What if you didn't have Christian parents to give you a tradition for you to now pass on to the next? Or what if you don't have kids? What if you're not married? Is all of this irrelevant to you? Well, no. Proverbs 4 still speaks to you, and it points you to the family of God. It points you to the church. If you're a child of God, If you have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you have been adopted into the family of God. And in the church, you have spiritual fathers and mothers. You have spiritual brothers and sisters. You have spiritual sons and daughters. So who can pass down a wisdom tradition to you if you don't have Christian parents? And then to whom can you pass that on to if you don't have kids of your own? Look to people in the church. 
Look for discipling relationships here. Initiate them, especially if you're older in the faith. And especially if your kids are now grown and they're on their own and you look around and you see a sea of young people who were once your kid's age. And you have to realize that many of them don't have Christian parents. They don't have Christian mentors who have passed down a tradition of faith like you were able to do for your child years ago. No one has ever sat them down. No one has ever given them biblical instruction like the father in Proverbs 4 did for his son. So they're like spiritual orphans. Perhaps God is calling you to take on a role of being a spiritual foster parent. Maybe you feel like, you know, I've already had my own kids. I've already discipled my own kids. They're grown now. Well, it doesn't mean that discipling others is over. Even without kids in the home, you still have a role to play. Look around and see spiritual orphans and ask God, how can you play that role as a spiritual father, a spiritual mother? Well, friends, so far we've seen this image of a parent passing along a tradition of wisdom to a child. If we keep on reading in Proverbs 4, there's a second image describing how to get wisdom. It's the image of of an ancient path. It's the image of, a, of an old road well trodden by saints who have taken it in the past. For some, that might include your grandparents. For some, those saints might even include your great-grandparents. And, and there's this legacy. There is this tradition of faith in your family line. Well, if you look at uh, verses 10 to 19, there is a theme here about keeping to the old roads, about keeping straight on the way of wisdom. So listen to verse 10 again. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. Now, as we saw back in chapter 2, there's been this consistent imagery of two roads, Life consists of two paths that you can take. There's the path of uprightness, the path of justice, the way of the good, the way of wisdom. And then there is the way of evil, the way of darkness, the crooked path, the path of the wicked. And so we see that there are two ways, there are two paths, there are two roads that we can take in life. And here the father is saying, son, I have shown you the old roads that your grandfather took I am taking that road right now. Keep to it, my son. Don't stray from this road. Now look further down in verses 25 to 27. Listen to what he says. Let your eyes look directly forward. Look straight and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Basically, friends, the Father is saying, Son, if you want to get wisdom, if you want to grow on it, grow in it, then you just stay on that straight path that I showed you. It's as simple as that. It's a straight shot ahead. Now, you would think it would be easy to stay on it. But the thing is, is that when it comes to the way of wisdom, as Scripture says, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And that's in contrast to the way of the wicked, 
the path of evil where the gate is wide and the way is easy and those who enter it are many. But of course, it leads to destruction. This concept was famously illustrated for us in John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. When Christian meets evangelist for the first time, he asks how he can get this, this heavy burden of sin that he's been carrying on his back. How, how do I get this burden off? Well, the evangelist directs him along a straight path. He, he points across a very wide field, and he says, Christian, can you see yonder wicked gate? And it's wicket. I know a lot of you hear that, and you think, wicked gate? No, not. It's wicket, the T gate. It just means a, a small gate along a, a, a wall, a fence wall. Can you see yonder wicked gate? And at first, Christian can't see the gate, but he can see a shining light coming from the direction that the evangelist is pointing. And so he sees exactly where he needs to go. He just has to stay on that path. He has to cross that very wide field, and he's going to get to the gate. Sounds easy enough. But it's not easy staying on the straight and narrow because that straight path takes him straight into a miry bog called the Slough of Despond. And then it leads him to Mr. Worldly Wiseman, that can, who convinces him to take a quote-unquote shortcut past Mr. Legality's house up through Mount Sinai through the giving of the law, and it doesn't go well for Christian. He, he does eventually get to the gate, but not after much tribulation. And the whole point is, is that we usually know which way we are to go. We know it's ahead of us. We know the path that we should take. We can see it in front of us. We see the old road laid out before us. And so you would think it'd be, it would be a no-brainer of which path in life we are to take. But the problem is, along that ancient path, our hardship and trouble and there are plenty of detours branching off that path that, that look easier, and they look much more gratifying, and so we end up heeding worldly wisdom and ignoring the wisdom of our parents and our spiritual mentors, and we step off of the beaten path, and we take one of those detours, and every time, every time it leads to destruction. The path of the wicked looks gratifying, but according to verse 16, it leaves you unsatisfied and restless. It says, the mischief of the wicked keeps them restless, keeps them from sleeping. If you go down that road of wickedness, you will be restless until you get others to join you on this road of stumbling. Look at verse 17. It says that for those on one of these detours, wickedness has now become a substitute for your food and for your drink. Doing violence becomes the only thing that quenches your, your thirst and, and satisfies your hunger, and yet it's never enough. And then in verse 18, we get this beautiful image of the righteous traveling on paths of ever-increasing light, but the wicked, according to verse 19, stumble along paths of ever-enveloping darkness. The father, as you see here, he's just throwing out as many images as he can to paint that path of the wicked as unattractive as possible. And he's also giving good reasons to avoid it. But after all of those images and all of those reasons, reasons sometimes 
Sometimes you're just going to have to look at your kid or look at that person you're discipling and just say to them, don't go there. Just don't go there. And that's basically what the father does in verses 14 to 15. Look there, in verses 14 and 15, there are six different ways in which the father tells his son, don't go there. Don't take that wide and easy path. Just just listen. Verse 14, do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. Now I realize, I realize just telling someone, don't go there, I know that for some of us, it sounds very legalistic. sounds very moralistic. And is that really good advice for a parent to tell a child, you know, give a bunch of don'ts, a whole list of prohibitions, you know, paths he shouldn't take, people he shouldn't associate with, things that he should avoid and turn away from and pass on. Is that really helpful? Is that really what we should be telling people? Because then they're not going to listen. You know, people don't listen when you warn them about associating with certain people. They, they don't care when you, when you tell them to avoid certain paths or places, even if you list out all the dangers that they might find there. Saying, don't go there, doesn't work. It doesn't change behavior. Well, sure, we tell ourselves that. And I, I understand the concern for becoming moralistic. But you know, friends... In the last few weeks, I say we've been pretty effective at getting masses of people to avoid certain paths and certain places by warning them of what they might be exposed to. We've told them that there might be a highly contagious virus along those paths or in those places. And that warning has gotten millions of people across this world in this country, in our city, and, and even in our church, from, to changing our behavior, breaking old habits, adjusting our lifestyle, all because we are afraid of catching a virus. And all the while, we seem to forget that a far deadlier, far more contagious virus is already out there, and it's everywhere. The Bible calls it sin, and it's plagued mankind since ancient times, and it has claimed countless more lives than all of the outbreaks in human history combined together, and sin doesn't just kill the body, it kills the soul. But do we apply the same vigilance and the same caution as we do towards sin, as we do towards the coronavirus? Are we willing to make the same changes to our behavior in order to avoid the paths of the wicked? Are we willing to adjust our habits, to adjust our lifestyle in order to not walk in the way of the evil? If not, well, then it probably means that we don't really believe that sin is all that dangerous. We're more scared of catching the coronavirus than being exposed to sin. But if we took the Bible seriously, if we really believe what it teaches about the wages of sin being death, and not just physical, but spiritual, then the Father's instructions in Proverbs 4 begin to make perfect sense. You would avoid the path of the wicked in the same way you would avoid traveling to China right now, or for some of us, even 
traveling to Chinatown right now. Well, in the same way, in the same way, friends, avoid the path of the wicked. There is something far worse down that path. But of course, when it comes to sin, of course, avoidance can't be the ultimate solution. Quarantining the wicked from, from hanging out with us is not going to be enough. Because if you haven't realized it yet, the wickedness has already pervaded our hearts. We're already sick. We're already sinners. And we're all on the path of destruction. But thanks be to God that there is a cure to this particular virus. We have, of course, the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to give his body and to shed his blood to make a cure, to make a way for us to reach the path of righteousness. If you receive Jesus by faith, if you have his blood and righteousness cover you, then you will be saved from the curse of sin. And Christian, if you are saved, if you are a Christian whose eyes have been opened to see the wickedness of sin and the greatness of Jesus in the gospel, then why would you take one of those detours? Keep to the old roads, Christian. Stay on the ancient paths, well trodden by the faithful and the wise who have gone before you. So friends, we've seen the image of a parent passing down a tradition of wisdom. And then we've seen the image of an ancient path used by the wise. Lastly, in this third section, there's this image of guarding your heart. Look at verses 20 to 21, and you'll see a theme of keeping wisdom guarded in your heart. Verse 20, my son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. And then look at verse 23. Keep your heart, guard your heart with all vigilance. Now, this idea of keeping or guarding your heart, it doesn't have to do with purity. I know when we typically speak of guarding your heart, it's usually in the context of romantic relationships and purity. But here in chapter 4, the focus is not on keeping bad stuff out of your heart. It's about keeping good stuff in the father is telling his son to guard the wisdom that's in his heart to keep it from being lost, to keep it from being forgotten. So if you notice in verses 20 to 27, the father begins to name all of these body parts that his son should employ, employ all these body parts to stay on the right path and to not forget my teaching. So incline your ear, keep your heart Put away crooked speech, that is, from your mouth. Let your eyes look directly forward. Ponder the path of your feet. You see what the Father is saying here? He's just saying, apply everything you've got, everything on you, your whole body. Put your whole self into keeping wisdom guarded in your heart. Now, what does that actually look like? What do you actually do? How do we practically keep wisdom in our hearts? We do it by memorizing we do it by constant recollection of biblical truths. We've already seen this. This has been taught already. We saw in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 3, that the son is called to bind his father's teaching around his neck and to write them on the tablet of his heart. He is to memorize what he's learning. 
And here in chapter 4, the son is to let his heart hold fast to his father's words, to not forget them, to not forsake them. He needs to memorize. He needs to memorize the instructions of his father. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, the two children, Jill and Eustace, they are sent by Aslan on a mission into Narnia to rescue Prince Rillian, who has been captured by the Emerald Witch and held prisoner in her underground lair. Now, before he sends Jill on this mission into Narnia, Aslan, the, the, the Christ figure here in this story, he's with Jill on top of a mountain. And he gives her very clear instructions on how to conduct herself in the search for the lost prince. And Aslan tells Jill to memorize four signs, four clues that will help her and Eustace to find Rillian. And then he makes her repeat those four signs over and over and over and over again until she is able to recite them perfectly. And before he sends Jill off to Narnia, Aslan leaves her with this warning. He says, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why. It is so important to know them by heart and to pay attention and to not pay attention to appearances. Remember the signs. Believe the signs. Nothing else matters. Friends, here in church, here in this worship service, the air is clear and so is your mind. But when you step back into the world, you step back into your home, you step back into your circle of friends, you step back into your workplace or your classroom, that's when the air gets thick. That's when your mind can be confused. That's when it's easy to get off track, to take a detour, to leave the old road. So remember the signs and believe the signs. And by signs, C.S. Lewis was obviously referring to biblical teaching. He's exhorting us to remember the law of Moses and and the teachings of Jesus, like the Sermon on the Mount, which, by the way, were both delivered on mountains. Make a practice of memorizing. Take the Ten Commandments. Take the Beatitudes. If you haven't memorized those two essential teachings of the Christian faith, start there. Memorize Scripture. Hide God's word in your heart. Say it to yourself when you wake and when you lie down. And whatever strange things may happen to you on the road, let nothing turn your mind from following those signs, those scriptures. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you 
Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. And we pray that you will keep our feet straight on the path and that we will follow the tradition that has been handed down to us from the saints of old, the tradition of wisdom, the tradition of faith, and the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.